This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Ramon Alam. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, I hope you and your family are thriving in this weird period that I feel like there's no applicable noun for. You and I keep abreast of each other's movements on Twitter. And so I know that like so many people, you're not letting this larger crisis interrupt your cultural diet. You're still reading and watching movies and television. Yeah, you know, at the beginning there, it, it, it kind of did. I sort of felt like I didn't have the brain space to focus on anything that was more than maybe 22 minutes long uh, just because of the world. Like the only thing I really have to compare it to is maybe the first six weeks after Iris was born, you know, uh, only this time instead of sleeplessness, it was of course anxiety and just, you know, the world creeping in. Um, but now I really am trying to read books and watch a lot of movies and stuff. I mean, some of that is just book research. Cause the part I'm gearing up to write about right now is like how method acting changed American film and popular culture. So I have to watch a lot of 20th century film and popular culture, but um, I'm also trying to find time to do it for pleasure and to be connected to other human beings, real and imaginary and understand the world and the human condition and society in new ways. I mean, all that stuff, you know, that we want culture to give us all those kind of incredible gifts are still there. You know, they might read differently or feel differently now, but it, it still serves all of those purposes. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I find that my own and, and looking at other people's cultural habits are changing though. Like lots of people for some reason wanted to watch outbreak and contagion when this all started, which just seemed bizarre to me, but like, who am I to judge? Whatever gets you through it. It's fine. And you know, like you can't go see live theater. Uh, so now people are streaming recordings of old productions or there's zoom table readings of plays. And, you know, some people love that stuff. Some people just can't deal with it. You know, um, for me, I find that I just really want to be captivated by something that is not always my first priority with art. But right now it's like, I just want it to encircle me and for me to like, not want to focus on anything else, but it. I think there's an audience that goes to things like outbreak and contagion during a period of outbreak and contagion in search of sort of catharsis because reality can't quite provide that. And I think that the inverse of that is there's an audience that wants to watch 30 Rock and simply right. be diverted and entertained. And I think that they're both valid and I think they both speak to the solace that art and culture 
can provide. And I think that's so important. And I'm so glad that we have writers and filmmakers and the makers of television shows who, you know, out in the world, giving us that ability to transport us from this reality into another. This week, you actually talked to one of those people, Megan Abbott. Yeah, and I I thought it was a really fun conversation. Uh, Megan is a wonderful and beloved crime novelist who's written around nine novels. Um, She often writes about female adolescence. Uh, In fact, my favorite book of hers, You Will Know Me, is about a young uh, gymnastics protege. And every one of her books, there's just this really wonderful controlled intensity to her writing. And and I was really interested to talk to her for a few reasons. Um, First, because I think there is something that happens on a process level as you become really experienced at making the thing you make. Uh, That process might be really different from your process when you're just starting out and just trying to figure out, you know, what a book is and, and, and how it works. But I was also interested in talking to her because she's recently shifted gears and started writing more for television. She wrote for David Simon's The Deuce, and she recently co-created and was the co-showrunner with Gina Fattori of Dare Me, which is a TV adaptation of one of her novels. And I should mention here that in between my talking to her and this interview airing, USA Network announced Dare Me wasn't being picked up for a second season, which is an interesting reminder that in the midst of all of this, the companies that produce culture still have to figure out how to make money. But, you know, like how they make those decisions in the midst of all this, which involves making some predictions about people's watching habits a year from now, is totally beyond me. I'm really excited to eavesdrop on the two of you, so let's do that. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. All right. I am here with Megan Abbott, a novelist and the co-creator and co-showrunner of the TV show Dare Me. Megan, how are you? Okay. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing okay. Thanks. (laughs) 
obviously I'm recording this in my bedroom. You're recording your end in a closet. You know, the <laughs> the, the coronavirus has affected our process here at Working. And I, I thought I'd just ask, you know, how is it affecting your process of uh, writing right now? Yeah, it's been, I tell you, it has been challenging. Just uh, you always want to get in that cocoon, or at least I do when I'm writing. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it has been reaching out to people I know, that other writers, and trying to talk about stuff other than current events. That has helped. Do you have a particular way you like to get into that cocoon normally? Is there like a ritual? Do you have like a little pre-writing ritual? Is there a specific time every day you like to write or anything like that? I do have, uh, I actually posted on Instagram today, I have all these, I call them the household saints, but above my computer I have this shelf of little totems, um, various good luck things. I have now there a gold Furby in honor of Uncut Gems, and uh, <laughs> uh, just in a, a, some actual prayer candles, and just so that I can see them above my desk, so they help center me. Um, that's a big help. Also music, um, which changes with each project, sometimes with vocals, sometimes not, sometimes, you know, that, that helps. Um, it is almost like getting into a trance-like state, like the old automatic writers of the 19th century without the, without the morphine <laughs> or the opium. <laughs> you know, you've written nine novels at this point. Do you feel like beyond the getting the right music and the household saints and the maybe swearing off morphine, do you have a kind of <laughs> like process that you have down now for how you write a book? Yeah, I do. I mean, it changes a little with every book, but but there there's a lot I know, which is that I sort of have to go in with a very loose three-act plan. Uh, I don't outline, but I do have three acts. Uh, but that's sort of giving myself permission that everything's going to change mm -hmm. um, and that I kind of have to... Um, really have that first draft be everything everything on the table you know I, I don't stop myself I don't over worry uh, um, and then I revise multiple times I, I just have, remind myself of that every time I mean I revise constantly the first 50 pages of every book has probably been revised a hundred times or oh, more. Wow. so so uh it's there's I'm not fast. Um, people think I am because I have a lot of books, but I just don't do anything else. So. <laughs> uh, you know, obviously, before you get to that three act structure, you have to have that initial impulse, right? Yeah. That initial thing that drives you into the material. So what was it with Dare Me? Was it a particular image or character or watching cheerleader videos on YouTube or, you know, how did you uh, how'd you get there? It was sort of all those things. It started with a news story, which over half my books have. Even um, something I read um, about a cheerleading coach who was having an affair with a National Guard recruiter stationed in the school. And it was just a sort of local scandal. And it was so interesting to me because she was so young. She was 25 and uh, not that far out of high school herself, and she had been partying with her squad, and that dynamic was so interesting. But that's not a book, right? I, so I originally that had been a short story, and it kept sticking with me because I started to really look at cheer. As you say, I was sort of watching how it had transformed since I was a teenager when it was really just popular girls you know, somewhat casually dancing on the field. 
um, while drinking schnapps. So, um, uh, but uh, it had become this really competitive, uh, rather dangerous sport. Uh, really a uh, high level of athleticism, and uh, and their pride and their uh, risk taking and their injuries that was just so fascinating and awesome to me. And and that really was the way in. Lots of writers, and I'm sure you're one of them, have a lot of ideas. You know, how do you figure out this is the idea that I want to spend one to two years, maybe longer, living in and fleshing out and diving into? Yeah, I have a lot of false starts. I admit I have uh, at least probably twice as many false starts as I have novels. Um, I often, I've gotten a hundred pages in, it's terrible, and realized it's not a book. And it usually is with the boys. Sometimes it's with the energy. I don't usually know for sure it works Mm -hmm. till... I've reached the halfway point, I would say. I, I go past the halfway point. Um, oh, oh, wow. So so, yeah. so you have, a, there's sort of a, a um, carcasses of abandoned books <laughs> strewn around your hard drive. Yes, yes. But one of them I went back to and it became a book. So that I always tell writers that have the one in their desk drawer, like, keep it, keep it, you know, so to speak. Uh, because of the first novel I ever tried to write became my fourth novel, fifth novel, uh, The End of Everything. That was the first novel I tried to write, and I abandoned it for a decade and then came back to it. So it does happen. So you mentioned that you don't go in exactly with an outline, but with some sort of, I guess it it sounds like a treatment of what the three acts are going to be like. Can I just ask what that looks like? Is it a three-page prose? Is it bullet points? Yeah. Ultimately, it, it becomes bullet points, and then it becomes really elaborate bullet points. But... Early on, it's usually um, really simple. Um, it's all my books tend to have this same structure while I was spilling my secrets, um, in that there's like temptation of some kind or some kind of uh, being drawn into something, or uh, uh, and then a reckoning, <laughs> and then a paying for it, or redemption, if you'd like to think of it more positively. So if I can imagine what my version of those three things, stages are, then, then so that, that's what I would write out. Like, um, well, dare me, it would be, you know, um, Addie's, it's a crush on the new coach who comes to town, she becomes overly involved in her life, there's a, there's a death, (laughs) and she has to um, do some covering up. Uh, meanwhile, her best friend is trying to expose her. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, right. So. so how did you get from, you know, news article of the coach, uh, oh, it's going to be this 17-year-old girl, oh, it's going to be first-person present tense, you know, how did you work that those uh, point-of-view choices out? It's probably in stages. Um, it, it never comes all at once for me, but uh, I've always been interested. I guess they must call it like the, the Gatsby structure, which is you you don't tell the story from the point of view of the most interesting <laughs> character. But then they can become the most interesting character, of course. But you tell it from the Nick Carraway. Yeah, who's the Nick Carraway? Right. You know, I, I read somewhere that when you get stuck, you like to read a really good novel, not a crime novel, right? Because you're writing crime novels, yeah. but just a really good book. And that, you know, what struck me about that was that there's so much of the writing process that is actually intuitive 
and is about inspiration and is about, you know, how you harness that and give yourself permission to just kind of go with those impulses? I've gotten better at that. Um, I mean, I I think my instincts were probably fresher and purer. So you lose that, you know, you, you, because you second guess and you you have this sort of patina of uh, uh, voice. uh, So there's these voices in your head that just grow and grow. The more books you write, the more people you work with, the more editors, you know, they they grow. So uh, you lose that. But what I've gotten is the sort of a trust um, to uh, when to shutter that out and uh, to just go further and to take risks. Um, you know, sometimes it means I don't look, for instance, I don't show anybody a work in progress except my agent. And he, and he, it's primarily because he was an editor. Um, and I don't even like to show it to him until it's finished. So probably that's part of it too, is I don't like to talk in detail about it. I try to keep it in, yeah, hovering in that creative space, sort of untouched until it has to be. I mean, that's so different from a TV writer's room, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and the, all the Hollywood processes, let me tell you. It, I mean, it has done a number on me because I've really gotten used to getting constant feedback and having to uh, justify every choice and therefore having to make conscious what I would prefer to be unconscious, which is just the thing you're saying. Like, the what you know, you don't know why you're doing it, but you're following your instinct. But in Hollywood you then have to at least construct construct some kind of believable explanation for why you did that So all the time. Really? Yeah. So like every meeting you're in, you're constantly justifying. Yes. 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 And that's like a different part of your brain. It's, it's, it's feels more like, like I always say like pitch meetings. It's more like, it reminds me far more of defending my dissertation than anything else. Mm. (laughs) It's a, um, Everyone has better shoes, but other than that, it's... A TV script, even just the way it looks, is entirely different from prose writing. You know, it's it has a specific formatting that's totally different. Your tool set is completely limited to dialogue and descriptions of what the viewer sees. And, you know, how did you learn how to write for that medium? Well, it's a, I, I'm still learning, but it I have learned so much. It was a multi-step process, though. I admit I, I wasn't the kind of person who read hundreds of scripts and, um, you know, you're writing a pilot. Read every great pilot. Uh, I read a few, but um, I didn't read that many. The one thing that I would recommend to anybody even though it's quite specific, a recommendation, is um, the screenplay to Michael Clayton, (laughs) which to me is one of the greatest screenplays of this this new century. And the um, writer, Tony Gilroy, who wrote that, um, has a Q&A, maybe more than one, in the volume that you can get of it. You can actually buy it as a book. It was made into a book. Mm -hmm. Um, And he is very great about this like whatever how every word that you put in the script can count um it's in a very different way than in the novel you're directing the reading experience in a much more specific way um you need to find a way to do the things you can do in a novel you have five pages to conjure an atmosphere in a nightclub say if you just put setting into interior nightclub (laughs) it's not going to conjure that for anybody so how in one sentence where you talk about the 
the the low lights and the the red vinyl booths and the you know like how like what are the few de- de- details you can put in to 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 conjure that and he has all kinds of tricks so for me it's been a lot about um because pilots uh, are so much about um selling selling the world of the of the show you know, once you have a show that's on the air, the scripts don't look like that anymore because you're writing them so quickly. But the, the pilot uh, has to be perfect and uh, every word, uh, no wasted word, Which I, by which I don't mean the dialogue. Dialogue should never be wasted in any script, but I mean everything else. Right, right. You know, it, it's interesting because in reading Dare Me, you know, part of how that book works is that we're just trapped in Addie's head. We see all the characters filtered through how she sees them as she tries to figure out what she thinks of them and and herself out and things like that. And of course, you know, it seems obvious, but as soon as you're filming it, you're outside of her head. You're a camera looking at her. Right. So, you know, it's not just about cutting the words. Right. It's also about like, how do I get this interiority and make it exterior? Like, like, how did you figure out how to do that? That was a that was several stages too, you know, because first you, you know, they, they always tell you don't use voiceovers, voiceovers are sort of cheap. It's sort of like one of those cliches of screen, well, the the whole industry that is how to write a screenplay. Um, in some ways, first it was framing things with a voiceover and then slowly stripping it out until it's barely there. And uh, but it was also about starting the pilot very much only seeing what Addie sees and really most of the pilot is is with her because one of the things that 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 is very hard when you um giving someone your script is they're often going to be very confused of who they're following tracking is the thing they always call it in scripts but Mm. you need to be tracking someone so in some ways the intense close pov of the book helped but other stuff um you know, you have to start to think of what the camera can do, which is not that you would write that into the script because you don't ever want to do directions like that. But like the, the camera can do so much into into sort of, you know, showing what the what the character is seeing, you know, guiding that like even in a small space, even in a small moment, um, we're seeing everything through her eyes. We are only, you know, the, so there's like it's I mean, it's, it's tricky. It was definitely the thing we worked the hardest on. The first TV show you wrote for was The Deuce, right? Yes. But you had written other screenplays before that? So I had originally Dare Me was supposed to be a feature uh, for uh, Fox 2000, mm. uh, which is no longer exists as nothing does. <laughs> but uh, but, uh, but uh, uh, so I wrote that script and almost got made. We had uh, Natalie Portman attached. It almost happened. So that was uh, so I had gone through with Fox that you know, several drafts with them. And so I had, that had really, you know, that had really prepared me for feature writing, but that is so different than TV writing, you know, in, in the feature world, um, at least then, um, and historically has always been a producer and a director's medium. Um, so the writer, you know, you get your first pass and your second pass and then you're out the door. So, you, you know, you don't, uh, and in right, you know, TV is the, is the writer's kingdom. Right. Well, because it seems to me that, you know, there's a real difference between making a self-contained adaptation of Dare Me and transforming it into an episodic, open-ended TV show. Yeah. So what was it like to break that frame, I guess, that you had built for yourself? Well, it was helpful to have been on the deuce because like 
like us, they had always planned for like three seasons. You know, not not too many shows go past that anymore. But they had always explicitly planned for it. So the Deuce is, as you know, is a very different animal. Uh, it's um, thirty main characters and spans a decade and a half. And uh, um, but uh, in terms of how like trying to figure out how to, what they call in TV, break story, which is a really perhaps overused term, but they're, you know, all stories and most stories in TV are broken in these series of little index cards. It's so lo-fi. It's one of the things I love about it where there's a, everyone does it differently, but there's a different color for each character and you figure out how to, you know, essentially how to parcel it out, how to, um, how to move the story. And, um, you know, we have this book, so how much of the book do we want to get through in the first season, especially because we've, we've added storylines, we've added characters because the world, we need to make the world bigger. So, Gina uh, Fattori, uh, my co, she had worked on many shows, starting all the way back with like Dawson's Creek. Uh, so she really knew. I mean, which and its heyday, I think, was like twenty-five episodes a season. Yep. So she really um, had, knew knew that terrain too. So that that was very helpful. But you know, you take it, you take it piece by piece, and then you uh, and then you change it. It changes all the time. That was the other thing to get used to. Is uh, it's uh, um, and I got a little bit of taste. I certainly got a taste of that on the deuce because you see how the showrunners will inevitably rewrite your entire script because they don't even have that actor anymore by the time your episode comes up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which did happen to me. <laughs> so written on each of those, for you know our listeners who aren't in the TV world, written on each of those index cards is essentially a story beat for a specific character. That's right, for an episode. And then there can be other ones. You just might have one that, um, uh, Cheer Fall, which we had for, we knew there was going to be an accident and we didn't know where it was going to go. So we had this like card looming. We didn't even know who was going to fall at the very beginning. Uh, but the rest, yeah, they're, they're color coordinated for, for the actors and, uh, they would even cut the card so it would be a half an Addy card and half a Beth card for scenes that were really so much intensely about about the arc of both of them. You know, so you're, it's about arcs in that right. way. Right. And so in both The Deuce and in Dare Me, the room is kind of coming up with that outline together, right? Yes, yes. You, you, Gina and I had a plan for where the season would begin in the middle and the end, but like, like I do with novels, but we, but how, what, what each episode is going to be, because uh, also you also have to do what they call a pitch out. After you've met in the room for a while, you have to essentially deliver this whole season. You have to pitch it to the network and their parent company. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so you do really have to figure it all out. Um, yeah, you start the first week, usually you're just really spitballing. It has to be free. I mean, it isn't like, uh, it's nothing like execs. It's totally free creative space, you hope it will be, where everyone can say anything. And then slowly you start to put cards on the board, as mm. they say. Let's get some cards on the board. Like you've, let's start with Addie, you know, and you start to think, you know, um, what, you know, and then, then, yeah, you start to break it into episodes. What what needs to happen first? Uh, mm. it's, um, it's kind of amazing that it ever happens, but there's something so exhilarating at the end when you have this whole room filled with note cards that looks like... Like uh, Carrie from Homeland. <laughs> <laughs> Your show is a conspiracy. 
<laughs> it is indeed. Uh, once you're a showrunner or co-showrunner in this case, you're in charge of that room. You're in charge of creating the environment where people can collaborate and the best ideas come to the fore. Um, how did you design the room so that 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 would happen? Yeah, I mean, Gina had, like anyone who's worked in TV a while, has had had plenty of negative experiences uh, or had knew, known of some, and some of our more senior writers had. So we knew what we didn't want it to be like, which is you know, some rooms are very competitive and nerve-wracking and... Um, our, we maybe swung a little um, the opposite way. Uh, we did have a really casual room, you know, really, because it's a story about adolescence that, you know, people would talk about their adolescence. So we really, we needed that to mine that. So we, and they would talk about their toxic friendships and their crushes on their teachers. And so we really had to create an environment where everybody would feel comfortable um, saying anything and, you do try to model by by how you talk and um, and, and not dominating it or, or any of those things. And so having the deuce was good, too, because it was a very jolly room, despite the subject matter. Right. <laughs> One thing I know you've mentioned a few times in interviews is imposter syndrome, which I think is something we all feel. And, you know, you're particularly with Dare Me, you know, you're in charge, but there's also more experienced people in the room. You know, it's your first time out of the gate as a co-showrunner, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. How do you handle imposter syndrome? How do you work through it or push past it? Or do you name it? Do you ignore it? How do, how do you handle it? I would say um, at that, by the time you, if you've actually gotten that far, you've, you sort of lose it about that. You feel like I know this story of this world better than anybody. Mm-hmm. And um I didn't have it there, but certainly at the beginning, um, when you're in production, that's very daunting because you have everyone from props to costume to special effects to stunts to the guy that picks the cars that the characters drive and that are going to be on the street, the picture cars as they call it, they'll be on the street. They're, they need you to tell them what you want. And, you know, the director obviously has a big role in that, um, but... But ultimately, it's your show. So that that I really had to like really work on. Uh, I always knew, always knowing what I wanted and mm-hmm. and saying it def- definitively. Um, you know, the the part that works in your favor is there's just no time. And, right. And and it is really. It, TV works that like people with far less experience, even than me, end up running shows. So I would always tell myself that there are people like. You know, it's just a world where people come from all kinds of worlds, and if this idea is the thing, um, so so that the, that there's a democratization um, that's there. I mean, as a, like a petite woman, there's certainly with a small voice. So, like sometimes it was like a matter of um, actually literally being heard, <laughs> but um, but you know, I guess because it's such a long process, by the time you really get there, you you kind of have developed some tools to overcome it just that way right you kind of um i think way sort of lean into your strengths which for me was um a genuine excitement creative excitement over what was happening Mm. is so contagious for everybody and then they will carry it with you and then you kind of create this inner circle like with the deep our dp um 
I mean, everyone there is an artist, but you figure out these ones who are going to be with you through the whole thing, and like you all get excited about the stuff together, and it's really contagious. And then everyone's taking it more seriously. No one, no one on the show wants to work on a show no one cares about. Right. You know, a, a term we've obviously been using a lot in this interview is showrunner, and you see it in, you know, every review of a television show or every article about it, but it's almost never actually defined. <laughs> yeah. So can you, for our listeners who are like, I keep seeing this term, what the hell does it mean? What what actually is the difference for you now that you're a showrunner? What is the showrunner? What do you do? So essentially, you're every, every school, there's a script you write and the ones you don't, but everyone goes, like, you are the final pass on everything. Um, That's the writer piece. And you're, you know, you can assign extra passes, but essentially you're doing it. Um, And then you're, you're leading all the pre-production and production and post-production decisions. Like, let's say for a given episode, you have hired a director they're coming in while you're shooting the last episode. But you're, they're doing prep on the next one. You're meeting with them, and, and you're for, you have this what ultimately is often like a four or five hour tone meeting that you often have to break up over several days. And you go through the entire script with the director, and wow. you talk about how every scene should feel, what you know, what they might not know, because some of them have only seen the pilot, and they're directing, say, episode four. So they really need you know you have to help them. So there, there's a lot of that. And then you're meeting with the, with the wardrobe for every episode and, and the props and the, you know, like all these sort, you know, and you're, you're sort of, everything is passing through you and, and you have to kind of decide about it. And then you're also the ambassador to the network and, uh, and, and beyond the larger world beyond the executive producers, the, you know, so that it, it's, yeah, you're sort of the, I guess the, the common denominator, which is why it helps to have two. And sometimes there's even more than two. And we also had a producing director who was, uh, directed a couple of episodes, but was there to help directors and would, uh, you know, just know the show as well as we did. Uh, but from a director point of view, you know, one thing you mentioned there is that you're doing the final pass on the scripts. Um, was that an educational experience? Did you learn a lot about writing from rewriting other people so directly? It's, it's, I suppose what I learned most is not to take it personally when I had been rewritten because you, <laughs> you realize, you realize, I mean, it is really so much that, so you, you break the story most TV today, I mean, some, if you're doing Netflix, for instance, you know, it's very different because they, they write all the scripts before they start shooting. But generally, um, once you start shooting, no matter what, things change. Every script is getting whittled down. It's too much. We can't afford this location. We have to shoot this. And then that has a cumulative effect as the season goes on. Like you've had to drop storylines, like mm. minor storylines, or you've or you've or sometimes you've found something that really works and you want to devote more time to it. So you've had to sort of push other stuff out. Is there um, is there an example of that from this season of Dare Me for people well, who are watching I, it? Yes, yes. I tell you, we really realized that um, we needed to ha- uh, check in with the Addie Beth relationship every episode, mm. like multiple times, um, because you know it it just was the way to guide the viewer, um, and it you know it, it just was became this anchor in the episode. 
and then the thing I had experienced on the deuce is like your one of your scenes gets moved to another episode, and so you end up writing on another. You know, your scene gets dropped in another episode. The scene you wrote, someone else's episode. So that happens too. And now, now I totally get that because you don't have time for it, or, or we ha- we're not there yet with this character, and so it gets someone put something in episode two, and you know what? We're going to use it in episode four. Uh, fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that sort of like ego management part of the collaborative process is, at least for me, <laughs> a challenge. Yeah, for sure. No, that's always there. And that's like, a, like you know, production, you see it everywhere. You see it, um, you know, among the actors, of course, it's inevitable. You know that from directing. Like, it's it's complicated. There's everyone, no one's sleeping. Everyone is, is often in a foreign place, mm-hmm. and their, you know, their nerves are a little raw, and uh, everyone gets, you know, gets anxious. And so, you know, there is a, it's an emotional experience that I was not prepared for. Mm. Yeah. How did, so how did you adapt to that? It, it was really always trying to, I mean, ex- sheer exhaustion sometimes helps. Like, I can't worry about that. <laughs> I need to get my five hours. Um, but also just knowing that, like, this just is a bad day. Everyone gets a bad day, um, including me, and, uh, and that's, then that's okay. So, you, you know, you do have a certain ritual, as you said, you have the, the, the saints that you have with you, the music you listen to, but you, you weren't carrying those saints onto, you know, the airplane and putting them on your tray table while you were writing or whatever, right? So, like, how did you adapt your process to working around this incredibly demanding more, more than full-time job? you know, occasionally you end up having to write on set and that's the worst case scenario by far. Like, uh, you know, living in Toronto all those months, um, it really did try to create, uh, you know, you would be writing on weekends all day, every weekend. And it's less about trying to, you know, uh, transport oneself or sink into something. Cause you're in it when you're shooting a show, you're, you're in it. Uh, it, it's more about, uh, spark. Um, what haven't we done? How can I get excited here? You're, you're just trying to give some energy and life to it. And, and that is, that is the toughest part. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're setting a scene in the liquor store. Here's some pictures of six liquor stores in Toronto. I think we could use, aren't they beautiful? And then you get inspired and then you, you know, like, so a lot of it, the, you know, using that creative network of, uh, production locations and costumes, uh, you know, there were costumes that I wanted to write scenes to that our costume designer had, uh, had come up with, you know, then that, that helps. So it just becomes, I suppose, a different set of household saints, which are which are our wonderful crew. Uh, incredible. And then also your novel writing process had to change too, right? Yeah. We, um, coming back was the really hardest part. Uh, you know, we fit, wrapped in August. So coming back to the novel that I'd left sort of halfway through uh was a long term like uh heart of darkness like up the river kind of thing to get back into that and and how did you do that was it getting back into the music or free writing from a character's point of view or yes both those things um trying to sort of i had you know working on the show i hadn't been able to see a movie or read a book or i I mean i was reading that's not true i hope always have to be reading but i was reading very slowly so i was trying to consume when i came back i wanted to see as much um 
live art and movies and all, all the things I miss now this week um, as possible and read as much as possible and um, just try to get all those circuits firing again. Well, Megan, thank you so much for talking with us today about uh, all sorts of different creative processes <laughs> that you're involved with, uh, uh, with Jeremy and your other projects. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was such a pleasure. I, I've enjoyed sitting in my closet and speaking with you. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Isaac, this conversation was so interesting. I really could have continued to snoop on it for so much longer. I'm a novelist myself, and two of the points that really leapt out at me were Megan saying that she'd resurrected an early attempt at a novel later on in her career, that we should resist that impulse to burn a half-finished manuscript hiding in the drawer, and that when she writes, she doesn't use an outline. Yeah, I think that's a reflection of the confidence that comes from having done this process a bunch of times. You know, it's the old saying of, uh, what is it? This isn't my first rodeo, you know, that to have the confidence to say I'm 100 pages into writing this book and it isn't going anywhere and I need to put it in a drawer is impressive. And then it's even more impressive to be like, but actually I'm going to keep thinking about it because maybe sometime down the road, the idea for how to fix it will come to me. Um, thanks to computers, nothing we write necessarily needs to go away. And so I think it's a good reminder that, um, there's all kinds of different ways of approaching material. And just because you start something and you think it's going to work out doesn't mean it will. But also, if you have something that you think is, you know, a disaster and it's never going to work or whatever, that's not necessarily true either. You just might not be at the point where you're ready to realize it. Yeah. So much of what Megan went on to discuss with respect to both her fiction and writing for the screen was the way in which story itself is almost mathematical formula, that it's comprised of something she she called and, and a lot of people call beats. Isaac, I feel like you know something about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very funny because I was just writing about this part for my own book. But the 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 term story beat, uh, which is a big thing, particularly in Hollywood script structure, and character beat, which is a big thing in acting, actually has its origins in Russia in the early 20th century. And in the... Um, 
theater director and actor Konstantin Stanislavski, who was trying to sort of figure out a system of acting. And he came up with this term bit. And a bit is a unit of action, a unit of the, you know, what a character is doing, right? When what the character is doing changes, essentially the bit changes. And um, his protege, this guy, Richard Boleslavsky, who brought all of this to the United States, also used the term bead, meaning a unit of story action, right? Like a story is composed of beads, like beads on a necklace. And if you go through those beads, you get the whole story, all of the action of your script. But uh, Boleslavsky had a very thick uh, Russian accent. And so bit and bead became beat which is why we talk about character beat and story beat, even though they actually mean two different things. Um, And so it actually has no origins in music at all. It just means like a piece of the whole. It's not rhythmic, um, which is a really weird thing. But in, in script analysis in theater and film, you really are trained to figure out what the beats of the story are uh, and what causes what to happen and line all of those up in a really linear way. It's useful because that way when you hand a script to a collaborator, they are able to immediately see what those beats are. Or if you're in a room with a group of other writers, you have all agreed on what the action of the episode is so that when a draft of the episode comes in, you're not all confused about, wait, how do how do we get here? You know, you already know what it is and then someone is going through and filling that stuff. In. It's so funny to me. First of all, the misperception that it is related to music is really amusing. But I also think there's sort of a, like some insight in that misperception. But it's also just funny to hear the nebulous, exalted art discussed as uh, almost like algebraic equation that it's, it's just about putting together A, B, C and D and creating a story, which is sort of greater than the sum of its parts. Megan mentioned the screenplay for Michael Clayton as something that she felt was particularly instructive as she was trying to learn this new medium. I am so lowbrow personally that when I teach writing and I don't teach screenwriting, I teach fiction writing, um, I usually talk about television scripts. I talk about pop television. I talk about uh, Frasier, which is one of my favorite sitcoms. And I also talk about Friends and the way that episodes of sitcoms are structured in this way that's so clever and that you remember them years later and that it's a really extraordinarily high level of writing. And we call television the idiot box so dismissively, but I do think that there's a lot of art that goes into making those 22-minute confections. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, most episodes of Frasier are incredibly delightful three-act French farces, you know, boiled down to their 22-minute essence, which if you've ever um, seen a bad farce or tried to write farce yourself, uh, doing that is incredibly difficult to do. Um, Farce is incredibly uh, mechanically complex. And then within that, you also have to have character development and revelation and all the other things we want from drama. Yeah. Isaac, you have recommended Dare Me to me very highly. Is there anything else that you're watching right now that you're getting lost in the moment that's helping you through these difficult times? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I love Columbo, and Columbo has recently become streamable. You couldn't stream it for a really long time, I think because of a rights dispute, but you can actually stream it on IMDb of all places. Um, And, you know, talk about, perfect 
structure, you know, and talk about worlds that you can just enter and live in for 75 minutes. It's it's so delightful. And the formula of it is so comforting. And the um, variations they find within that formula so inventive. I, I really find that deeply pleasurable. What about you, Ruman? That's wonderful. I've been doing so much cooking. Um, I have two children, so we eat like seven meals a day usually. And so I spend a lot of time in the kitchen. And and in that period, sometimes I just turn on um, Murder, She Wrote, which is one of my truly, truly favorite television shows from the 1980s and streamable via this very weird thing called Sling TV. Like it sort of reruns on Hallmark Mysteries and Murders channel or whatever that channel is. And anyway, I find it extremely entertaining, extremely transporting. And um, Angela Lansbury is truly just an extraordinary performer. It's so much fun to watch her every night as she cracks the case. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Although how is there anyone left alive in that town? The murder rate is so high. For well, a town that small. She, you know, she does travel quite a bit. That's and true. and in, in the later years, like many great novelists, she becomes so financially successful that she maintains a pied terre in New York City, which is the murder capital of the world in that period. Right, that's true, that's true. Well, television is really comforting, and it was really lovely to hear this conversation with somebody who is involved in the making of television. So thanks, Isaac, for that. Absolutely. Thank you, Ramon. One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems. So if you have any questions about writing, whether you're trying to write a novel or a great email or any other aspect of this strange thing called creativity, please send them to working at slate.com. And if and when we can, we'll put those questions to our guests. And if you enjoy this show, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial now at slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Megan Abbott for being our guest this week, and enormous thank yous to our producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for a conversation between our co-host, June Thomas, and the actor, Allison Wright. Thanks for listening. Now, get back to work. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.